been about an hour, hour and a half this morning, so... If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You know, because uh, we have been there for the better part of a year, that we have been studying uh, a letter called Hebrews, written by our good friend Barnabas. But Easter is coming up, and I thought it would be appropriate for us to take a slight detour to get a little bit closer in the narrative of the New Testament to the cross. And so what I'd like to do over the next three weeks is to take a little bit of time, dividing it into three parts, to study John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is often called the high priestly prayer of Christ. In the last moments of freedom before the betrayal that would lead to his arrest, Jesus eats a meal with his disciples here at the Last Supper, and he concludes that meal by praying. So this prayer recorded in John 17 is called the high priestly prayer of Christ because it resembles the kind of prayer a priest would pray as he's about to consecrate a sacrifice. F.F. Bruce, the noted New Testament scholar, says it's a fitting designation for our Lord in this prayer consecrates himself for the sacrifice in which he is simultaneously both the priest and the victim. It becomes a prototype of the perpetual intercession in which Jesus, as our ascended high priest, is engaged on our behalf at the Father's right hand, even at this very hour. John Knox, when he was lying on his deathbed, called his wife to his side, and when she asked, what is it, honey, that you would like here in the fleeting moments of your life, he asked if she would read scripture to him. And of all the passages from which he could have chose, he chose John chapter 17. To think about in the last free moments of our Savior's life that he would spend them not fulfilling some sort of earthly fantasy, but that he would spend them in prayer, and that he would spend them in prayer at least in part for you, says a tremendous amount about the priorities of Christ. And in fact, if John 17 is about any one word, it's about priorities. Uh, there are three parts to John chapter 17. In the first few verses, he prays for himself. That's verses 1 through 5. That's what we're going to talk about today. In the second section, he prays for his disciples who are sitting there with him, eating dinner there at the Last Supper. And in the last section, he prays for the future church, those people who, as a result of the Spirit-empowered work of the disciples, will grow into this body which follows Jesus even to today. So he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for the church. And included in that final section is us. He's praying for us. Today, we're just going to look at the first five verses. And if there's a big idea that emerges out of the first five verses, it's this. Jesus models his chief priority in prayer. And that is the glory of God. He models his chief priority in prayer, which is the glory of God. So let me go ahead and read that to you. In John 17, starting in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him, Jesus says referentially of himself, authority over all flesh, over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I pray this morning that as we dive deeper into the opening verses of John chapter 17, that we would be concerned with the exact same thing that Jesus was concerned with, that our hearts would be molded and formed in the same way that Jesus' heart reveals here in the first few verses of John 17, that you would be glorified, that you would be glorified in our gathering, that you would be glorified in our singing, that you would be glorified in our reckoning with your word, the self-revelation about who you are and what you love that you would be glorified in the way that we comport ourselves in the image of Jesus Christ outside of these walls, that we would be concerned with every breath, with every ounce of strength within our bodies, with every thought, with every affection, with glorifying you above all other things. Help us. Help us by the Spirit to do that this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If there are three things that Jesus asks for in those first five verses, it's this. The first thing he says is, Father, I pray that you would glorify me so that I can in turn glorify you. That's the first verse. In the next two verses he says, Father, do this glorifying work through the redemption of your people. Glorify me. Secondly, do this work through the redemption of your people. And finally, Will you glorify me in the kind of glory that is known only in the heavenly presence? Those are the three movements we see today. We start in the first where he asks the Father to glorify him so that he can in turn glorify the Father. Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 5 that no one except Jesus can glorify the Father in the way that he has prescribed here. When Jesus had spoken these words, and of course he's talked about in instructing his disciples, the death that is to come. But Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Repeatedly in John's Gospel, you remember that he said, my time has not yet come. You remember there have been a couple of instances in Jesus' public ministry, even at the very beginning in John 2, I think it's in verse 40, 44, somewhere around there. Jesus is at a wedding. The wedding has run out of wine. And Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to him and says, Hey, uh, we're going to need a particular uh, work from you. And Jesus says, Woman, my time has not yet come. And of course, he would go on to do miraculous things, works and miracles that would draw attention to the glory of God. But what he's driving at now is this, My time has come for the ultimate act that will glorify the Father, for the death, for the brutal descent and then the ascent in resurrected life the time for that the time for that has finally come and in this God will be glorified before we go any further it's important that we understand what it means to glorify God uh, we read a little devotional every night to the girls before they go to bed and uh, I could give you the very strenuous definition here about what it means to glorify God but I love the little devotional we read to the girls last night. He says, you want to make a big deal out of somebody to glorify them. This is what it means to, to understand who they are and then to be really public and visible and loud about it, right? Our God is extraordinary. He is all-powerful. He's in charge of all things. He's sovereign. He is aware of every moment. He is in control of every movement. 
He is all-knowing. He is all-loving. He is all-holy. He is all-just. He is all-merciful. He is almighty. And we recognize those things. And because we recognize those things, we proclaim those things. It's foundational to who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Glorifying God means to acknowledge his greatness and to give honor to him by praising and worshiping him primarily because he and he alone deserves to be praised, to be honored, to be worshiped. God's glory is the essence of his nature, and we give glory to him by recognizing that essence. We make a big deal about who he is. If we're taking the opportunity to talk about what it means to live out the Christian life, this isn't just a part of it. This isn't ancillary. It's not secondary. It's not an add-on. It's not an options list that we add uh, in perpetuity to the Christian life. It's foundational. This is what it means to live publicly as a follower of Jesus. When you dig down to the basement of Christian living and you run through the concrete and we find the substrate of the Christian life, it is the glory of God being proclaimed. This is why when we say we exist here at Rocky Mount Bible Church to proclaim God's glory and grace, we're not saying that as a secondary or tertiary example of the things that we are kind of about. It is who we are. It's our core identity. We are those who glorify God. There are an incredible number of passages of Scripture that talk about this, like Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not be cut off from you. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. God created us for his glory. In Isaiah 43, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created. Why? For my glory. Jesus told us to do good works so that God gets glory in Matthew chapter 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus warned that not thinking God's glory makes faith impossible. How can you believe in John chapter 5 when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Seeking the glory of God is foundational to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and it's foundational to God's work among those who are followers of Jesus Christ. He forgave our sins for his own sake. I am he who blots out transgressions for my glory. I will not remember your sins, Isaiah 43. In fact, Jesus receives us into his fellowship for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, Romans 15. God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea. And in fact, from Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is only truly a brief sample of how both the Old Testament and the New Testament places a rigorous amount of effort in explaining to what it means to follow God as this. We exist to herald the glory of God. 
That's why you're here. That's your purpose. And all the things that we do here, and the way that we preach and teach, and in the way that we sing, and in the way that we handle our Facebook page, and the way that we send out emails, and the way that we print bulletins, and the way that we steward our building, the way that we run all of our discipleship programs, and the way that we teach Sunday school downstairs and upstairs and run our children's ministry and our youth ministry and all the various facets of what it means for us to gather here as the local body of Christ at Rocky Mount Bible Church, it is grounded in this and, and founded on this question. How does this explicitly glorify God? And if it doesn't, we don't do those things. That's the marching order. That's the mission statement. That's the core of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We live to glorify him. And Jesus makes it exceptionally clear, even here in John's gospel, that that's why he's here. In John chapter 12, which is right before the Last Supper, he says in verses 27 28, Now my soul is troubled. And you can imagine why he knows what's coming after this meal. He knows that He'll make his way into the garden. He knows that the faith of his disciples is fleeting, that Peter will deny him. He knows that though righteous and having committed no sins, no crime, he's going to be arrested. He knows the torture and the pain of the cross that is coming. He knows what it means to be forsaken by the Father. He knows all of that is coming. His heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. Instead, he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The reason why Jesus endures such an agonizing death to take on the sins of many and impute his righteousness to those who are undeserving, he says here in John chapter 12, is for the glory of the Father that we would see him in all of his holiness and all of his love and all of his mercy and grace. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus prays that he would be glorified, but he prays that he would be glorified and so that that glory may glorify the Father. Because even he says, this is why I'm here. To make a big deal about who God is and what God's doing. Even in John's gospel, Jesus understands it's about the Father. So Jesus prays for himself to be glorified. It's interesting. We had a Jehovah's Witness come to the door one day. And uh, I had a professor in college, and they had a Jehovah's Witness um, come to his door, and he was working to get his Ph.D. in New Testament studies at uh, the University of Aberdeen, which is like one of the best New Testament Ph.D.s on the planet. And uh, the lady started arguing with him, you know, hey, uh, I'm, I believe that you don't understand a lot about the Bible. And he goes, oh, well, maybe you could explain something to me. And uh, she said, well, you know, what you don't understand, because you have one of those Christian Bibles and it's been contorted all over the place, is that it says an awful lot of terrible things about who God is and, and it contorts and things. You, you know, that may be true. You know what I've got here? I've got a, an actual copy of the Greek New Testament. 
uh, with our best manuscripts from what we had 2,000 years ago. Uh, maybe you could show me from that how I get God wrong. And so uh, he took out the Greek New Testament. She said, well, you know, it's John chapter 1. It's really John's gospel. You know, uh, your Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But we know that that's not true. Uh, we know that somebody just added that later. And she goes, well, here, let me do this. Let me turn to John chapter 1 here in the Greek Bible, and he hands it to her. And she goes, well, here you see, you can see where it's been. There's where the original says that Jesus actually isn't God. And uh, he goes, well, man, I tell you what, you must really know that Greek Bible very, very well because you're able to read it upside down, <laughs> right? And she goes, uh, sir, I perceive that you're very arrogant. And he goes, oh, I perceive you're a heretic. Get off my porch! So periodically the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons come knocking on our door and we get this, you know, well, Jesus is, you know, wonderful and he's a great prophet, whatever, but he's not equal with God the Father. You know, uh, of course, he never prays that he himself will be glorified. And I said, well, what do you do with John chapter 17 where he explicitly says, glorify me, that my actions in my death, that my actions in my burial, that my actions in my resurrection are worthy of glory. And yes, in fact, all of those things glorify the Father. But as we'll say later here in John chapter 7, the Father and I are one. And it's about this time that whether they're talking to me or they're talking to Laura, they start looking to see if the neighbors are as obnoxious as we are, right? Maybe there's some lower hanging fruit somewhere on the neighborhood's tree. <laughs> uh, now that they're here, I'm going to send them down to the Johnson's house, right? <laughs> Meg is shaking her head no. She knows what's coming for those poor suckers. <laughs> oh, well said. Jesus prays that the Father would be glorified through the glorifying work that he does in his death and resurrection. And he's is clearly pointing in that direction because he says here in verse 2, since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That is, given me, Jesus says. You have given me authority over all flesh, over all people. I am the one who has the authority. That's a startling pronouncement there. Because what he does with his authority is unexpected. I had a job working for an engineering company in Dallas, a consulting engineering company, and I was the lowest man on the totem pole. I was a guy who uh, delivered engineering documents, and I did plat and deed research, but I was a courier. And if you're looking at the long list of authority in that office, I was at the very bottom, me and my two fellow couriers. And uh, our boss came in one day, and there was a guy, I'd been working there about a year or so, and there was a couple of guys, and they'd been working there a few years, two, three, four years. We were all working our degree at seminary. And the boss comes in one day, and he goes, all right, uh, Billy, you, you're the head courier. We're making you the head of all the couriers, right? Uh, so uh, you're in charge of all the other. Well, can I tell them what to do? No. Do I get a raise? No. Do I get business cards? No. Do I get an office? No. Uh, so, but I'm still the head? Yes, you're the head courier. And with all that power that Billy was invested in on that particular day, this is what he did with it. There was one place that we didn't like to go. There was a, a city hall on the south side of town uh, in a suburb of Dallas where uh, we were always a little afraid to go. Uh, twice in the times that I had delivered plat and uh, deed research to this particular uh, city hall uh, there in this uh, small uh, enclave in the south part of Dallas, 
I had walked up and found police putting police tape around an active crime scene twice. That was just me in about a year. So Billy decides, I am no longer going down to that place. You guys are doing all of it. And uh, <laughs> this is how he exerted his authority. Pronouncement number one, as soon as the boss is out the door, hey, I'm not going there anymore. The really dangerous work, all the stuff we don't like to do, you guys are doing that, and I'm taking the safe stuff. And sure enough, until he was deposed about a couple of weeks later when uh, our boss caught him sleeping in the back room, and he justified it by saying, well, I got the other guys working. If I'm managing them well, I don't really have to stay awake the entire work day, do I? And the boss said, you sure do. You're fired. <laughs> I'd be willing to bring you back on as a junior courier, right? Well, your answer to the other two guys, which we love. <laughs> the first thing he did with all of his new authority was he put himself in a place of safety and put us in an increased position of danger. I love what Jesus says here in verse 2. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given me authority over all flesh. And what do we do with that authority? To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. It makes you remember Mark chapter 10, verse 10. I have come, Jesus says, not to be served, but to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. With all the authority of heaven, with all of the power, with all of the position, with all of the grandeur, with all of the might, Jesus comes to serve. And the way that he will serve and in the way that he will glorify the Father is by offering himself in atonement for our sins. Of that uh, work that he's doing, we see three things. He says, I've come to give eternal life to all that you have given me. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What kind of life is he giving? Well, first, it's eternal life. It'll never fade. It'll never be revoked. It'll never expire. There are people all over the world this morning who are struggling with coronavirus, um, Ebola, the flu, cancer, heart attacks, innumerable diseases and physical maladies. And many thousands of them are going to die today. Their physical bodies are going to expire. But the life that our Father gives to us through the work of Jesus Christ is a life eternal. It can never be taken away from you. It can never end. It can never be touched by any disease or malady. There's no calamity on earth. There's no natural force. There's no great assailant in history who can rob it from you. It's yours from him and it's yours forever. Secondly, it's predestined. In John chapter 15, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And in, uh, here in verse 3, he says, the, the ones that you have given to me. We understand that this is the plan of the Father from eternity past. In John 3.16, those famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus was sent. This was the plan of the Father. 
before you were ever stitched together, before any two atoms of this earth were congealed to make the ball upon which we walk. There was a plan in the head of God. There was a strategy in the heart of God. There was an action being wrought out in the hands of God to redeem many through the death and resurrection of the Son. Jesus was sent according to the agenda of the sovereign will of the Father. This eternal life is not accidental. The eternal life is intentional. And the eternal life, we're told, is given through this, that they might know you, the only true God. What's the eternal life? How do we get it? Is there some magic serum? Is there some mystical moment? Is there something that's handed down to us, an elixir of some kind in the ether that we're able to imbibe? And it's not a thing. It's a person. In Proverbs chapter 9, we're told, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. How may I be saved? Because in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have him who is making God known. He who reveals the heart and will of God. It's relational. Jesus has come to bring us knowledge of the Father, knowledge of his love, knowledge of his holiness, knowledge of what it means to be related to him and perfection that comes only through our Savior. He prays that he would be glorified so the Father would be glorified. He prays that this mutually glorifying work would be done through the work of redemption. And finally, Jesus asks the Father to glorify him in his heavenly presence. He says in verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's set past tense there, having accomplished it. I don't think this is one of those omnipotence or omniscience things, right, where he's looking into the future and seeing the things that are due. I think he's just so committed to the work of redemption that he states it as if it's already done. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished all that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, once in heaven, now asks for the glory that was his fully there. In Philippians chapter 2, we find that that glory was veiled. It was veiled in human flesh but now the glory will be unprecedented, displayed for everybody to see. And in fact, as in Revelation 22, we're told that in the new place, when we join him in heaven, there's no need for the sun because the glory of God is so bright it illuminates all things. What do you do with a passage like this one? How do you apply a passage like this one? Let me offer you three very humble suggestions. Number one, in making observations not just about what Jesus says, but how he approaches this particular moment. In the most trying circumstance of his earthly ministry, Jesus prays. In the hardest work that he will have to do here on the earth, Jesus prays. In the moment which causes him the most fear, the most anxiety, the most consternation, the most turmoil, Jesus prays. Are you praying? 
some of you, I'm sure, because of calamities like the one going around here, your anxiety is through the roof. It's hard to concentrate. It's hard to fall asleep at night. It's hard to get up in the morning. It's hard to do the normal tasks of everyday life. And, and I know you're scrolling through Facebook and you're swiping through Instagram and you're reading all of the news stories and you have the television on and you're talking about it and it's occupying your work and it's occupying your kitchen and it's occupying your family time and it's occupying all of that. But have you actually prayed? You can tell the virtue of a church and you can read the virtue of of an individual believer by whether or not they pray. Are you praying? Are you praying? Secondly, when Jesus prays, he prays with a heart for the glory of God. We've got an awful lot of people in this room who I'm sure have virtually no prayer life. It's a couple of words here and there before a few meals. But folks who have not actually dedicated themselves to a regular, intentional, planned out moment of prayer. And those who are praying, my guess is that there are some in this room, you pray regularly, right? You're praying, Father, I thank you for this food, that you would bless it to my body, amen. Oh, and for so-and-so who's in the hospital, them too. And that's the extent of what you're actually praying about, the content of your prayer, right? We've had prayer meetings here at this church, and we've done this many, many times, where we've gathered together, a very small group of us, and we start sharing prayer requests, and it comes out, well, so-and-so's in the nursing home, and this person's in the hospital, and this person has the flu, and this person's got, and all we're praying for, the exact same things over and over again, repeatedly. But we're not repeatedly praying for the thing that Jesus prays for, which is that the Father would be glorified in our lives. You've got to ask yourself this question in light of what's going on around the world when so many people are in fear and so many people want to know if we actually believe what we say we believe. They want to know if our faith works. They care less about whether it's true. They want to know if it's actually changing our lives. And the thing that you've got to pray about isn't primarily keep us safe, make me healthy, help me to be whole. The first thing you've got to pray is, whether I live out the day or not, am I living in such a way as to point people to a God who I believe with all my heart is sovereign, is holy, is loving, is totally in control? Am I living in such a way as to confirm to my coworkers in my neighborhood and my family that I don't believe that there is a drop of rain that falls on the earth that he doesn't know where it's going? When you pray, and I hope that you do, what do you pray about? We pray first for what Jesus prayed, that in everything we do, God would be glorified, and that we would order what we do based on the question, how does this glorify God? Finally, when Jesus prays, he prays with the heart of selfless obedience. He prays with a heart of selfless obedience. It's not enough to pray. It's not enough to pray for the right things. We must pray and pray for the right things with a mind toward obedience. Jesus doesn't say, Father, may I glorify you and you glorify me that you might receive all of this glory and then walk <laughs> like Jonah in the opposite direction from the cross. He marches intentionally toward Golgotha. He sets his heart and his mind on doing the work that the Father has called him to do. So much so that he says, it's done. 
What you've called me to do, it's done. It's guaranteed. I'm in. Tom Nelson, the pastor of Denton Bible Church, is famous for saying, don't ever pray for a hole in the ground while leaning on a shovel. You want God to be glorified in your life? You're going to have to make some decisions. You're going to have to do some things. It is going to require radical obedience so that the people around you are going, oh, they're, they're different. Their priorities are not my priorities. Their agenda is not my agenda. Their hopes and aspirations are not my hopes and aspirations. They are living a different life. And they're living it for the glory of the God that they love. Jesus is going to establish the priorities. Here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Over the next few weeks, as we make our way deeper into John chapter 17... I want you to read it so that you're prepared, so that you're prepared to see what it is that we have here in this single chapter out of John's Gospel. I want you to read it in context to understand what Jesus has done before in this dinner and where he's headed. Uh, the story of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and specifically the narrative of his uh, trial, arrest, death, resurrection, um, in Mark's Gospel is pretty short couple of chapters. In John's gospel, it's like half the book. You may want to back up and see that that meal, that final meal, lasts through most of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And it's only after 17 that Jesus makes his way into the garden. Or 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. This is the whole part of the story for, for John, who he is as an evangelist, who he is as the gospel writer proclaiming the good news. Read it. Read it in context. And then do this. If you don't know where to start, maybe prayer isn't a regular part of your life. Maybe you haven't been praying the priorities of heaven, and maybe you haven't been living in obedience. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to ask you to get on your knees when you pray. And right in front of your face, if you pray beside your bed, you pray beside a chair, you pray beside a desk, or wherever it is or whenever it is that you do it, to open your Bible to John 17. And to open your Bibles to the first few verses there of John chapter 17. And to read them like a prayer. Father, we understand that when Jesus prayed, he prayed that you would be glorified in everything that he did. We praise you for the glory that has been ascribed to you through the death and resurrection of our Savior. We pray also that in everything that we do, you would be glorified. Direct us toward those things which make much of who you are. And to start there this week that we will be the people, that I will be the person who as my agenda, as my goal, as my mantle, I carry this. I will glorify him. He has given me great confidence to do so. Father, I pray as we emerge out of this building this morning and confront a world that is rife with fear, and faithlessness and uncertainty that you would allow us to be bastions of hope and courage and conviction help us to know who you are and to proclaim that with great vigor so that your name might be glorified in our homes in our church, 
in our streets and across our nation and our world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing one more hymn together. And we're going to pray.